As I told our Sunday school class, I kept for today the scripture that Stephen had picked out, but I couldn't get him to leave his manuscript so I could just read it. So the title is different and uh, the content, no doubt, is a little bit different. I chose the title, The Boat, The Storm, The Savior. We heard the text a few moments ago, the story read from Matthew's Gospel. And one of the things that stuck out at me was the simplicity of the story. And yet it contains not only a world of meaning, it contains a cosmos of meaning. Let me try to explain what I'm thinking about along these lines. <clears throat> As I think about this story, I think about the image and concept of covenant. That won't be a surprise to my Sunday school class because that's what I've been thinking about for months and what we've talked about from time to time. But what better image of covenant is there than a boat? Covenant in in the sense of a group of individuals, all of whom have a commitment to what's going on, an obligation to behave in certain ways to help the enterprise come out well, and lots of other dynamics that determine the well-being of the group while it's in this covenant, moving in this boat, moving toward its destination. So covenant is the theme. But before I get to the New Testament material, I want to begin with another story of covenant. How many of you know who the Golden State Warriors is? Monica uh, Eppinger blessed us with a story about the Golden State Warriors in last Sunday's uh, Sunday School discussion, and it came out of nowhere, as far as I know, she hadn't come to class planning to tell the story, and we certainly hadn't been aware, unless you're a basketball fan, unless somebody's a basketball fan, and knows what's going on with the Golden State Warriors this year. They were five-time, I think it is, national champions between 2013 and through 2018, or something like that. Now, The Golden State Warriors are where? Who knows, besides Monica and Dave? Where are the Golden State Warriors in the standings? The bottom. They're at the bottom. They've lost something like 20 of the last 23 away games. They've won only, what is it, seven of 37 games, 7 of 37, 10 of 37, some number like that. They're at the bottom. Imagine, what must this team be going through? Well, we won't go into that. It's obviously a challenge. But they're crafting their response to this challenge in a, uh, an impressive kind of way. 
As I did a little research on the Golden State Warriors this week to find out what they are doing, it became clear that they're not considering this season a lost opportunity. Part of the reason they're in the doldrums is because of injuries to star players, other circumstances that has benched most, if not all, of those star players. So the team they're fielding are the second string, and I suppose in some cases third string players, some of them rookies, who are playing in the professional, uh, at the professional level for the first time. And one of the things that I found striking in the story that Monica told last week was that the star players are not lying abed at home, recovering, taking it easy, since they don't have responsibilities on the floor. They're on the sidelines and they're cheering, and they're not only on the sidelines cheering, they are engaging with those rookie players, in some instances as a personal one-on-one -on -one coach, and doing so in uh, rather creative ways. Part of the story I heard last week was that there's a particular um, uh, one of the particular star players on the sidelines, and he was watching a particular rookie because he's working with him. This rookie made a terrible mistake. Terrible in the sense that it was kind of obvious and a professional player maybe shouldn't make this kind of mistake. But what did his star player mentor say? He said, that's my rookie. That gives us something to work on this week. As I read more about the Golden State Warriors, it became clear that they're about something besides baseball. I mean, basketball. They're obviously about basketball. And yet, there's something more going on there, it seems to me. Because even though they are at the bottom of the heap, they still operate with a distinctive set of values. Core values, they call them. These values are compassion or empathy, mindfulness, and yes, of course, competition. And the fourth one, joy. I thought, what? When I heard that described, what do these things have to do with playing basketball? Isn't playing basketball all about the revenue stream or the fame, or the honor and glory? What do these things have to do with that? Well, as any of you who have played sports in a healthy kind of setting, it's always about more than that. It's about developing persons. It's about developing character. It's about doing something worthwhile that involves playing a sport and winning when you can and at the professional level, making money, and all the rest. But with this set of values and the way they're responding to this season, it seems to me that that story is also about a covenant they've made with each other that they're, and, and it's not just this season they made the covenant, it's a covenant they've been operating with for many years, apparently, around these core values of compassion slash empathy, mindfulness, competition, and joy. Compassion, 
you have to connect with one another at a level of understanding and willingness to know one another and respect one another. Mindfulness, you have to remain open to new information, new wisdom, wisdom which in some cases may come from the most unexpected places or from no place. It just comes. Competition, sure, learning the skills, <clears throat> doing the disciplines of practice, the physical workout, and all the rest. You don't win national championships without competitive discipline. But what about that word joy? There seems to be a philosophy on this team that if we can't do it, if we're not going to do it for joy, we might as well not do it. Now, I don't know if they would put it in just that way. But think about the number of covenant activities we do as part of a group working toward a goal, and we wake up one day to find ourselves doing it with no joy at all, just doing it. Because we have to somehow for some reason. Well, uh, <clears throat> I've given the game away in a sense by connecting the Golden State Warriors and what they're doing with a sense of covenant. And doing so because covenant, as, as I'm conceiving it here, is a description of the reality in which the Golden State Warriors live. It's a reality they're living as they join themselves to one another to move toward a worthy goal. Now, we come to the story in Matthew. Jesus has begun his ministry. This is early in the story, the way Matthew tells it. Chapter 8 is earlier than we would think by the number of the chapter because three of those first seven chapters were taken up with the Sermon on the Mount, a couple of them with the birth stories. So we have Jesus coming out of the wilderness testing, beginning his ministry because he sees that John the Baptist has been thrown in jail, and he's picking up the work. And the first thing he does is to announce something. He makes an announcement. He says, reorient yourselves because the reign of God is breaking in. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he goes about doing things that seem to illustrate what that kingdom of God is. He heals and he restores and he uplifts he delivers people from dark spirits that have been distorting and destroying their lives. And the important thing to note is that these are not just one-off miracles for now him, now her, now this other one. These seem to be signs that he is d doing to illustrate what it means to say the kingdom of God is at hand. God, <clears throat> excuse me, God is making all things new in these particular kinds of ways. Then we come through the Sermon on the Mount in which he's describing the kind and character of the life that those who live in this covenant will be learning how to exhibit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice and righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful because they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who are peacemakers because they're demonstrating they are offspring of the very God who know how to reconcile as God reconciles and makes peace. And he goes on. Love your neighbor, but not only your neighbor. Love your enemy. 
Do not judge and condemn. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Don't live an anxious life about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat, where you're going to live, and all that stuff. When you seek the reign of God and his ways, these things all find their proper place. And on and on he described the qualities and dynamics and characters of what this kingdom that was breaking in was supposed to look like. And after he did that, he undertook some more healing. He healed a leper in the first part of chapter 8. He healed the servant of a detested Roman military officer who was one of those who imposed the oppression of the Roman Empire upon the people of Israel. Healed his servant. And then he went to Peter's house at Capernaum. Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum and made his home there, and Peter's home was there. And when he came to Peter's home on this occasion, Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. He healed her. The evening went on with people gathering and gathering and gathering, and Jesus doing more healings and more signs and wonders that showed how powerful the energies of God's love and grace can be. To the point that people began to think of the prophet Isaiah, as, I, as Matthew expresses it, people were thinking, wow, remember what, what, what uh, Isaiah said? The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And not only this, they thought of another uh, uh, part of Isaiah's message. They said, you remember that servant that suffering servant that Isaiah talked about who will take upon himself our infirmities and take away our diseases? Is that what we're seeing? It was clear to them that something unusual was happening. And it's at this point, while he's at Peter's house and the crowds are gathering, for some reason Jesus decides that because the crowds are becoming so great, you'll get in a boat and leave. That's not the way marketing works today, is it? And it says that as Jesus stepped into the boat, he was followed by his disciples. More than that, he was accompanied by his disciples. His disciples were with him in wherever he was going. And as you heard in the text, a storm blew in. And the storm is described in, in, in the original language with the word seismic. It was a seismic storm. As some translations say it, a storm with great fury. So that the boat was being swamped. And then it follows with this interesting comment. Himself, however, doesn't even say Jesus' name. It just says himself was sleeping. Well, of course, the disciples who were with him went and roused him. Again, the language is interesting. The same word that's used to say Jesus was raised from the dead. They raised Jesus from this deep sleep. They woke him up. And they said, Lord, save us. We're scared to death. Well, actually what they said was, we're perishing. 
And Jesus, blinking and getting his eyes open, perhaps, looks on him, on them, maybe with a little sm smile on his lips and twinkling in his eye, and says, Why are you so timid? Should I call you weak faith? Then, having arisen, again, the word for resurrection. You see, when these stories are told in Scripture, often they're pointing us to other larger stories that they can't tell in this one. But because this was written after Jesus' resurrection, they wanted people to be mindful of all of the life and power that may be gathering itself into this situation. Having arisen, Jesus admonished the wind and the sea. You just call them weak faith. Why didn't he admonish them? We might. But he admonished the wind and the sea, and there was another interesting word, mega calm. Seismic storm, mega calm. A magnitude of calm that was able to match the fury of the storm. And the men marveled. And you know what they did next? They asked a question. As Matthew tells it, they asked a question. They said, what kind is this? Now, most English translations will say, what kind of man is this? But it literally says, the word man isn't there. It just literally says, what kind is this? Suggesting the question, what kind of being is this? Is this really a man who can speak and calm the winds and the waves? What kind is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Have you ever seen a dog well-trained who will not move in certain ways unless he or she hears the voice of the master? And then when the command is heard, when the word is heard, the dog does exactly what? was said. That's sort of the, the uh, uh, meaning, the sense of what's being said here about the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves did what they were commanded to do. I dare say that the calm that existed over the wind and the waves existed also in the hearts of those disciples. And that may be at least one point of this story. But I think there's another point, too. And that other point is this. The disciples were traveling in this boat. They were traveling in this covenant group, if you will, without realizing the great power of healing that was traveling with them because that one was asleep while the storm raged. And oftentimes, are we not a little confused and uncertain about whether there's as a power of healing traveling with us? And by power of healing, I'm using that in the broadest sense of the term. Because there are all kinds of circumstances that feel like a storm. It doesn't have to be nature. It could be social. It could be political. It could be personal. And we... Too often, I think, maybe this is confession, make the assumption there's nothing to be done. 
when all the while there's a power able to rescue, resolve, and rectify traveling with us because it's traveling in us. And I'm wondering if maybe that's a part of the key message that Matthew wanted to get across because the story ends right here. It doesn't say they continued their journey and, and, and uh, um, completed their crossing safely. It just ends. They're still in the boat. They're still on the sea. Another storm could come up. Is there anyone on the boat who knows how to run this boat and get us out of here and onto the shore? Well, of course there is. There's always someone on the boat who knows how to do what needs to be done if we listen to ourselves and one another. Because here, some and there were fishermen on the boat, well, of course. They would know how to run the boat, and they would, would uh, step to and get things moving and get the boat across. Jesus didn't know how to run a boat. I would assume he was a carpenter. He might have known how to build one, but he probably didn't know how to run one, which is a signal to us of the many situations in which he d depends on us to finish up after the storm has been calmed to carry the journey forward. I'm going to close with just one reference from the material we've been studying in our Sunday school class, some of which is around covenant. And I was, I was struck by this statement in Paul's letter to the Ephesians because it seems to sum up the whole thing. If we're thinking about covenant, if we're thinking about structure, if we're thinking about the nature of this reality in which we live, this vessel upon which we're floating in the universe, and what kind of a vessel the universe itself is, here's a clue in Ephesians 2. In him, talking about Christ, in him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. That's the good news I want to announce this morning, that we are part of a dwelling place in which God lives, and we can therefore find ways of opening ourselves, and many of you are doing this day by day. It's not a new thing. But I just want to encourage us all to realize that there are ways of opening ourselves to that presence so that after the storm is calmed or in the storming, the, the calming of the storm, sometimes it's the storming of the calm, we have more resources at hand than we might dream. And we'll access them more fully the better we understand the kind of covenant in which we're riding, in which we're moving. A covenant reality that houses God himself. Amen.